Our epistle lesson this day is selected verses from Romans chapter 11, and this text is the basis for today's message, where Paul writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very good. Well, I'm going to read our weekly awakening question to start off. It's in the bottom of your bulletins. There's a spot for you to write this down. I'll read it slowly, and I'll read it a couple times so you guys can get it. The question is, how are you living out God's right mercy for you so that others might be drawn to God's irrevocable right mercy for them? So, one more time, it's How are you living out God's right mercy for you so that others might be drawn to God's irrevocable right mercy for them? Very good. I think they introduced that this week because they've seen Vickers preach for the first time before, and they said, we better find a way to keep these people engaged. (laughs) Well, grace, the right mercy, and peace are yours from God our Father and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I have thought long and hard about what my first words to you should be. You know, I wanted them to be something powerful and effective, something that really catches the ear and sticks with you, maybe something even that could change your life. And so this is what I came up with. I as a not yet called and not yet ordained servant of the word, declare unto you that you should leave this place and sow the seeds of jealousy in the hearts of everyone that you meet. Yes, you heard that right. I want you to go out and make the world jealous. Now, some of you might be thinking, this is shocking and appalling, and what are they teaching at the seminaries these days? But you heard me right, and and maybe some of you are thinking, we demand an explanation right now. Well, prepare to be um, disappointed, because I'm not going to do that, not yet at least. Instead, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you a story about a very good man and a very bad man, and how the very bad man became jealous of the very good man and was ultimately led into the right mercy. There was once a very bad man. He was born into a religious extremist cult. And when he was young, he was taught 
in his holy book, the holy book of his religion, and then he spent the other part of his time being trained in terrorist tactics, tactics that would cause the most amount of pain and chaos in people's lives. You see, his group hated everybody that didn't agree with them, and he was raised to believe the same thing. As you might assume, this man was born in the Middle East, and he made his home in caves, and he would randomly attack people, often killing and maiming them without any apprehension at all. Well, one day, this very bad man, he, he gets arrested, and at his trial, they read his crimes against humanity, and he boldly takes credit for them, and he thinks to himself, won't my God be proud of me? There's also a very good man. The very good man was born to a single teenage mother out of wedlock. He was raised in a small town, and as a boy, he never disobeyed his mother and his stepfather. He did honest work, and he became a skilled craftsman. But then one day, he decided to be a religious leader for the kingdom of God. And so this man spent several years teaching and preaching and caring for the physical and spiritual needs of everyone that he came into contact with, like any good preacher might do. Well, very similarly to the bad man, the good man also got arrested. However, he didn't do anything wrong. He lived in an oppressive government, in an oppressive time, and they didn't like what he was preaching about the kingdom of God, so they framed him for a crime that he didn't commit. And so, unlike the bad man, he took no joy and no credit in the crimes that were read at his trial because they just weren't true. But he also offered no defense for himself. Instead, he entrusted his life to his heavenly Father. And so when his crimes are read aloud, he sits there and he listens. And these two men, they're supposed to be killed together, for both of their crimes were punishable by death by their government. One man very good, one man very bad. One man totally innocent, and one man very, very guilty. So their deaths were open to the public, and the public scorned and berated the good man. You see, they too had been institutionalized from a young age to believe that what he was saying about the kingdom of God was evil and bad because of their government. So the whole crowd was hurling insults at him, hurling objects at him, mocking him, cursing him. And the good man, with all the justification in the world to be angry, instead bowed his head and asked God to forgive the crowd. Well, the bad man was naturally very confused by this. You see, he had lived a life where hatred was answered with hatred. That's all he knew. And so he let a little bit of jealousy start creeping in for this man's life. He wanted to know why is he living a life where forgiveness, grace, mercy, and peace are so rich? He must be a very different sort of man. And so he let the jealousy grow and build and grow in his heart until eventually he looked at the very good man and he said, I am indeed evil and I deserve this death. But you, you are good. Remember me in your kingdom. So the very good man looked over at the very bad man, knowing everything he had ever done. And without a second thought, and without a second passing, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. And so the very good man 
freely justified the very bad man. You see, one of them was born to be the right mercy, and that was Jesus. And one of them entered into the right mercy through jealousy. The Apostle Paul in our text for today tells the Gentiles in the church at Rome, do not give up on the Jews. Don't give up. He says in verses 13 and 14 that he magnifies his ministry to the Gentiles in hopes that the Jews might become jealous. It's a weird thought for us. Jealousy, jealousy for God is a good thing though. It's Paul's thinking that if the Gentiles continue to live as the church is supposed to live, being of service, having mercy, having forgiveness, that the Jews will see this and become jealous and thus be led into the church. Paul likewise tells them, do not make any distinctions about who gets into the church and who gets to be saved, for God has consigned all to disobedience and sin. But that's just qualification for God's mercy. And so the Gentile Christians are also reminded that they too were once disobedient. They too were living a life of sin before they heard the truth of the gospel. It's a good reminder. It's a good reminder for them and for us. Paul knows that if they continue to live by the, the commands of God as a joyful response for the work of Christ in their life, that the Jews will see this, become jealous, and be led into the church. They'll wonder about our God, and they'll want that mercy, the right mercy, the only mercy that can save our everlasting lives. Now, how are we living? Would somebody who is without faith be jealous of our lives based on the way that we go about our actions every day? We are a living witness that testifies to the risen Christ. And this is a common theme throughout the Bible. Think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, and how their actions changed the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Or Daniel in the lion's den in a similar situation. Or the blood of the martyrs that was spilled that testified to the risen Christ. Or maybe think of Jesus himself, who pointed his entire life to God. You see, everything we do in this life is a public declaration of our God, the God that afforded us our faith, the God that afforded us eternal life. We need to be going out and making it known that there's something higher and holier than what people know every day, than what they've already seen. How are we operating at work? Are we gladly taking on the roles that everyone else hates doing? Do we talk about our bosses with respect behind their backs? Or do we enter into the same conjecture at the water cooler? When we're talking with family or friends, when politics comes up, which it always seems to, right? Are we talking with love to other people who disagree with us? Are we talking respectfully about the politicians themselves? Do we put them in a bad, scandalous light? Or do we put the best construction on them, like the Eighth Commandment says to are we praying for those who persecute us? Young men, are we respecting young women, especially those that we're dating? Are we living within the boundaries that God has set for us, or are we always trying to push it a little further and a little further? How about young unmarried couples? 
Are we treating our significant others as if they could one day be someone else's spouse? Because they could one day be someone else's spouse. What kind of message does that send to the rest of the world? Athletes, are we humble in victory? Are we gracious in defeat? Wives, do we berate our husbands publicly in front of kids and strangers? Do we ever talk about his shortcomings with our friends or at work or at school? Husbands, are we leading our lives as a witness to our family, as the spiritual head of the household? Are we every day in every way being God's hands and feet for our families? Are we joyfully taking on the roles that our wives ask us to do? For me, it's shopping. I can't stand shopping. It's just the worst. But it's a necessary evil, and so I have to go sometimes. But when I go, I have a list, and I get in, and I get out, and I'm done. My wife has a little bit different of a style. You see, she likes to peruse and give everything a a once-over or a a twice-over or a thrice-over. Not usually four times. That's a little far. Uh, I've since been told that this is how you're supposed to shop. You see, marriage has taught me a great many things, as I'm sure it has for the rest of you husbands out there. We learn a little bit every day. What if instead of sighing and grunting beneath my breath during that time, I treasured those moments with my wife and was joyfully there walking through the aisles? You see, there's a lot of other guys at the store when I go. Boyfriends and husbands, none of us want to be there at 2 o'clock on a Sunday during football season, right? And we see each other, and we're like, yeah, I know you're going through it too, buddy. What if I showed a smile and that I was enjoying that time with my wife and being of service? That would be very different. It would be a different kind of witness for those people. What if the next time that somebody comes up to you with juicy gossip, instead of furthering the gossip, you said, hey, let's pray for that person? That would probably freak people out. It would freak me out. <laughs> it would be very different, but it would point people to a different sort of life and our God who tells us to live a different sort of life. How about the next time that somebody cuts you off or a clerk gives you a little bit of attitude at a store or, or something like that, that you said, God bless you. That would change people's day and that would change their hearts a little bit. You would be a living witness. Or if an airport uh, or an airline loses your baggage, which happened to Alyssa and I over the summer, we lost a a bag uh, on Lufthansa. And let me tell you, I was not pleased. And I said some negative things about Lufthansa. But what if instead I had gone on the internet and said, God, thank you for the things you once blessed me with, and I trust you to get me through the present time. That would have been different. That would have caught people's attention. Make people jealous of the risen Christ and what he's doing in your life every day. You see, Christ desires all to be saved, and he's using you as a means of doing it. So no longer be consigned to sin and disobedience, but instead live for Christ and make those without faith jealous of a God who is so unbelievably good. It's interesting to me 
that God has on several occasions identified himself as jealous. However, this is a different kind of jealousy because God only ever is jealous for one thing, and that's his lost sheep. And unlike us also, every action that God has ever taken has made this evident. He's always coming after us. You see, he created us out of nothing, knowing that we would rebel. And then when we did rebel, he made us a promise, and he kept it. You know, I want to tell you another story, a story that I think really illustrates the jealousy that God has for us. When I was young, a teacher once asked me, what are we worth to God? I was a little confused by the question. It seemed obvious, so I haphazardly threw out the answer, everything. We're worth everything to God. I sat back pretty self-assured that this was correct. I couldn't think of a concept bigger than everything. So it came as a real shock to me when she looked me dead in the eyes and she said, no. You're worth something so much more to God than everything. You are worth God to God. I didn't quite get it at the time. I did not quite understand. It took me a second. And in this teacher's wisdom, she walked away and let me stew in it. It was a little stroke of brilliance. Because it really got me thinking, what do we actually cost to God? You see, Jesus was arrayed in perfect glory. He had no problems, no issues. He had shining white robes, hosts of angels singing His glory. And He traded that in for scraped knees, and the common cold, an acne-filled face during puberty, and He gave up His life. Likewise, God the Father had a son who He had never been away from, who had never disobeyed Him, who had no issues, who knew no sin because he had done no sin. God the Father was so jealous for you that he said, I'm going to take my one and only son who's perfect, the only one who's ever loved me properly, and I'm going to kill him so that I can spend forever with you. He killed him and he abandoned him. For you. That is jealousy. That's good jealousy. And that's the right mercy. That's the only mercy. The mercy that we need. However, he did not leave him dead. He raised him up from the dead. And he's going to do the same for you on the last day. You see, we are going to keep walking through this life as lackluster witnesses for Christ. But he will never, ever give up on us, just as Paul tells the Gentiles not to give up on the Jews. And there will be a day when anger stops, and slander stops, disagreement stops, unwanted duties at work will stop, shopping trips for me will stop. Thank you. <laughs> because Christ will finally call his wayward bride home out of an incredibly jealous love that knows no bounds. Enter into His right mercy. Amen.